Good morning again. I'm, uh, I'm glad. I was, yesterday I was afraid I was going to have to take a boat to get here this morning. So I'm very grateful the rain finally stopped. So, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at, I think, probably the next couple of weeks, what's a pretty familiar passage to you, and that's John chapter 4. So um, we're going to look at really kind of the, mostly most of the chapter this morning, but we're going to focus on the first seven verses. So uh, if you're able, I'd like to invite you to please stand as we read from the Word of God. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through it. And so now, Lord, I would pray that our hearts and our minds would be clear. That you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Hearts to believe and obey. Father, by your Holy Spirit, come and teach us. Lord, without you, we can do nothing. So we pray, Lord, that this morning that I would be neither seen nor heard, but that your word would be heard clearly. And then it is heard, Lord, that we would respond, that you would use it to transform us and change us, to make us, to mold us, to shape us into the image of Jesus. Now, Lord, again, we just pray that by your Spirit, you would come, make your word come to life, help it to live, and help it to, trans- help it to transform us. So in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Now, as you think about it, a lot of times, I think as, as Christians, one of the things that we often struggle with is the sharing of our faith. We're often intimidated by it. You know, it's easy to talk about Jesus and the gospel and things like that here. But outside of here, it's a little bit more difficult. And I think in a world that is increasingly secular and, and hostile to the gospel, it's more difficult so I want you just a little thought experiment. Think of what is the, the, like the hardest place you could imagine being a, a pastor or missionary or trying to share the gospel? Like what's like the worst group of people you could imagine having to do that with? I mean, atheists, that'd be a pretty, pretty tough crowd. A bunch of scientists sometimes, they could be intimidating. Muslims in a Muslim country, that could be incredibly intimidating. It could be a whole lot, you know. If you think about it, if you were a pastor, what's like the worst congregation you can imagine? Don't ever ask a bunch of pastors that question, because <laughs> they generally have an answer for it. But but I want you to imagine with me, if you would, if your mission field, your congregation, was a bunch of Nazis. Now I don't mean skinheads or bigoted people. I mean actually Holocaust causing, World War II starting Nazis. What if that were your congregation? 
Well, that is exactly the situation an army chaplain named Henry Garricky found himself in at the end of World War II. He was 50 years old when he volunteered and enlisted in the army as a chaplain. He was a Lutheran minister. His two oldest sons were fighting, one in Europe, one in Japan, when he volunteered. And as he had to go through a lot of hoops, you know, to let a 50-year-old man in the army, you're getting pretty desperate. But uh, he, pre he persevered and made it, and he wound up being a chaplain in a field hospital outside of London. And that's where he served his, his time during the war. But at the end of the war, he received what would be the most difficult assignment of his life. He was asked to go and minister to the 21 Nazi leaders awaiting trial at Nuremberg. Not just Nazi POWs, but the men that caused the Holocaust. Men who were Hitler's right hand. And so this, this little man, and he was kind of a little, kind of a little stumpy man, he, he, it was going to be his job to go and try to convince these men that ultimately what it was they needed to fear was not the judgment of man at Nuremberg, but it was the judgment of God on the last day. It would be the victorious allies that would surely judge him, but it was going to be Henry Garricky's job to try to convince them that they needed Jesus. As he tried to decide about this, thing, this, this possibility of assignment, the thing that motivated him were the, were the words of a song. It was a, a song that had become a motto of his life. It's just a little chorus. And it goes like this. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And I may nobly do my part to win that soul for thee. Some of you may know that song. But this was a prayer, and this really drove and motivated all that Henry Garricky did in his life. And at the end of all this, Henry Garricky would find that he had an opportunity to share the gospel at an unlikely time and an unlikely place among the most unlikely of people. And as we look at this very well-known incident from Jesus' life in John chapter 4, we see the same thing, don't we? we will see that Jesus began a revival at the most unlikely of times and the most unlikely of places among what is certainly the most unlikely of people. And so, as we think about that this morning, I want to just sort of speak to two different groups of people that may be here. To those who don't know Jesus and have never trusted in Him, I want you to know that no matter where you are, no matter what you have done, no matter who you have become, you are not beyond the saving grace of Jesus Christ. For those of us who do know Jesus, it needs to be a, a stark reminder to us that we will have opportunities to share the gospel at unlikely times and unlikely places among extremely unlikely people. So let's look at that. Let's look at the fact that first off, Jesus had this opportunity to share the gospel at the most unlikely of times. So look back at John chapter 4 with me, if you would, verses 1 through 7. So it says that, And when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, John tells us here that Jesus was traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee. Things had gotten a little heated with the Pharisees, and Jesus was backing off to another time to engage them. And um, so he had to go home. Well, there's no buses and trains, and only rich people had animals, so at that time, if you got around, you had to walk. And they didn't have excellent sidewalks and roads like we did. Everything was hot and dusty trails and dangerous roads. There were thieves and robbers and cutthroats all over the place. Israel is, you know, where they were is pretty hot. And so we have this, this picture here of Jesus being very tired from a rigorous journey when they arrive at this well. Uh, the, the, ver- the word that John uses here says that he was weary. And it's a word that really communicates this idea of a workman who had worked all day in the field, that he had just, just ground it out. I mean, I don't know if you've... I try not to work that hard myself, but, but um, some of you may be able to relate to that, that you, you, just, you just work and you're so tired you can't even go to sleep if you've ever been that tired physically. And this is kind of the idea. It's a very graphic picture of how Jesus feels here. It also appears that he was tired and he was hungry. Because he sent his, his uh, I mean, he was uh, thirsty and hungry because he sent his disciples ahead into, into town to get food. And then this woman comes up and he asks her for a drink. To, to top it all off, it was the hottest part of the day. It was noon. Doesn't get any hotter than that probably anywhere, certainly in Israel. There's no shade. The text tells us that it happened at the, at the sixth hour, and that's what that means. And so, I'm going to be honest with you. If I were Jesus in this situation, I would be looking for a snack and a nap. I'm not looking for an opportunity to share the gospel. Yet Jesus teaches us something really important here. He sacrifices His personal comfort and His personal convenience to share the gospel with someone who really needs to hear it. And in the same way, we've got to remember when the opportunity presents itself for us to share the gospel, we need to do it. We can't wait till it's convenient. Because I can almost assure you, it is never going to be convenient. There's always going to be something else that's pressing. You see, Henry Garricky faced the same sort of challenge. It was a very inconvenient time for him. The war was over. He had not seen his wife and his youngest son for nearly two years. And it would be another year longer if he stayed at Nuremberg for this assignment. And he was given the option. This was not mandated. They were, the superiors were sensitive to what a difficult assignment this was, and so it was an optional assignment. They just thought he was the best man for the job. And yet he chose to do it because he believed that it was his responsibility, his great duty, his great privilege to try to bring redemption to these men, to these Nazis. Because he understood what everybody else at Nuremberg understood. At the end of those trials, one thing was certain. Somebody was going to be executed. Somebody was going to die. And he understood that. And so did everybody else there. And so he was in a way, he was racing against time to the end of the trial, because he knew these men, some of these men, would be facing their ultimate end there at Nuremberg. 
And so he approached his task with the haste and the fervency and the energy of a man who was warning people to flee a burning building. We need to remember that, that of all that we do, of all that we're called to do in this life as followers of Jesus, there is nothing more important, there is nothing more pressing than sharing the gospel with people. Because it is people's greatest need. There is no greater need that people have. And so we should never treat it casually or postpone it in any way. Now might be the day of salvation for somebody. Now might be the only chance someone here has to hear the gospel. And it's our great responsibility and our great privilege to share it. I mean, a lot of times, I don't know about you, but we kind of hem and haw at it. Right? We kind of pick at it because we're so nervous. But again, we should be like Henry Gerke. We should approach this like if your neighbor's house is on fire, you're not going to go up and politely knock on the door and it's like, um, excuse me, uh, yeah, I don't know if you noticed, but your house is on fire. <laughs> you may want to get out. It's up to you. It's up to you, but if you, if you want to. No, we've got to have this kind of person. Your house is on fire, get out. We have to have that same sort of energy, that same sort of fervency when we take the gospel to people. And it's going to occur at unlikely times and an unlikely you know, opportunities are going to bring themselves up. Look, this Samaritan woman at this well, this was... Nobody would think that this was going to be the, this opportunity for Jesus or anybody to share the gospel. And it just is a reminder to us that we have to be like Paul told Timothy to be ready in season and out of season. It's a reminder that there is still time. As long as someone still has life, there's still opportunity. You must never forget that. So opportunities to share the gospel are found at the most unlikely of times. But they are also found in the most unlikely of places. Again, to go back to verses 5 and 7, it says that, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. A well on the outskirts of a village, in the middle of nowhere, was not the setting your average evangelist would choose. But by choosing this place, Jesus again shows us something. That the opportunity is the opportunity of God's making, of God's timing, of God's place. And so we need to remember that. There is any place can be a place to share the gospel. Look, let's be honest, Jesus shouldn't be preaching here. Right? Who, who booked Jesus here? He needs better management. Right? This is not the place you go to start a revival. This is not the place you go to have services. It was a lousy little town on the backside of nowhere. Jesus should have been in Jerusalem or in a big city where He's mingling with the people that matter, the thought leaders, the religious leaders of the day. He should have been somewhere important. And yet he finds himself in this little town that's small and in the middle of nowhere. And not just, not just that, this interesting, the name of this town was Sychar. Now, they're not sure, but this, this, town, this name meant one of two things. It either meant drunken town or lying town. 
You know, where are you from? I'm from Drunken Town. <laughs> I mean, that tells you everything you want to know about people, right? The people that live there, right? It's, it's not a good place. I mean, imagine, th- I mean, I was trying to think, like, what's something that would be comparable to that? I don't know, sharing the gospel with people on the Vegas Strip or, or sharing people in, you know, the gospel with people in New Orleans on Mardi Gras. I mean, these, this is the kind of place Jesus is going to share the gospel. This is a hard crowd. And, you know, if Jesus was going to this town, at least he should have been in town. But he wasn't. He was on the outskirts of town. He was at this well in the hottest part of the day. This was simply no place to win souls and start a revival. And yet that is exactly what Jesus did. Henry Garricky was also ministering in a bad place full of bad people. It was an unlikely place to share the gospel, to evangelize. But Pastor Garricky's view was that that was his role. That was his opportunity. That was the gift that God had given him to be able to go and share with this really odd congregation. And he once made a prayer as he was praying for, for this, this odd little bunch that God would preserve him from all pride and from any prejudice against those whose spiritual care had been committed to his charge. It was with humility that he would approach his task to try to save as many of these men as possible who were standing in the shadows of the gallows. And so we must remember that the mission field begins where we are. The mission field is not over there. The mission field is wherever God's people are when they are with people who do not know Christ. That is the mission field, and we must remember that. There are people all around us who need to know Jesus. If you're like me, you have neighbors that need to know Jesus. If you're like me, you, I was about to say, you work with people who need to know Jesus, but that's not the case in my case. That's a little different. But you likely work with people who know Jesus. You, have, you play rec ball with people who need to know Jesus. You go to school with people who need to know Jesus. Whatever it is, there are people around us who need Jesus. And we've got to remember that any place can be a place where we can share the gospel. But the thing is to remember, and we make this mistake a lot of times, is that we cannot witness to people, we cannot share the gospel if we are not where they are. Now, a lot of churches function this way. They function on what I, I refer to as the field of dreams philosophy of ministry. If you're familiar with field of dreams, it's a movie, it's a baseball movie. I don't like it very much, but... They, they, there's this thing where Kevin Costner is this farmer and he gets, here's this voice that says, if you build it, they will come. And he builds this baseball field and his, plays catch with his dad at the end. That's kind of the whole movie. And, um, but if you build it, they will come. And that's what we think. We think, well, we'll build great programs. We'll have great services. And all these people who don't know Jesus will flock to us. It's not how it works. People who don't know Jesus don't have any desire to be here as a general rule. They don't have any desire to be in church and in Bible studies. Now, it does happen. But we have to get more of a mindset to be more like Jesus and not expect people to come to us, but that we need to go to them where where they are, where they live, to minister much like Jesus did to this woman. In the same way, for those who don't know Jesus, there is no place in your life that you have arrived either literally or figuratively that is so bad 
But Jesus can't deliver you from it. He can't pull you from it. So you need to know that. You need to understand that. No one is ever beyond His saving grace. So opportunities to share the gospel are found at the most unlikely of times and the most unlikely of places. And it's also found among the most unlikely of people. So now we're going to go to verses 16 through 19. John chapter 4, and it says, And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Sometimes we have the opportunity to share the gospel with people that we think are very unlikely candidates to respond well to it. And this Samaritan woman illustrates this pretty well. She was a hardened sinner living in sin. Imagine trying to share, I mean, again, you think of a rough group of people. Imagine trying to share the gospel with a drug-addled prostitute or trying to share the gospel with a, with a gang member, somebody like that. That would be tough. But in choosing this woman to share the gospel with and to ultimately begin a revival with, Jesus models that we need to be really careful and put aside our personal pride in, in sharing the gospel with people and telling people about Jesus. See, this woman was an outcast among outcasts. First off, we know she was a Samaritan. Jews didn't like Samaritans. They viewed them as religious half-breeds. Uh, they, had, they believed that they had taken the pure religion of, of Israel, the one, worship of the one true God, and they had, they had mixed it in with the pagan religions of the peoples and the culture around them. And there's probably a lot of truth to that. So they were really despised as apostates by, by Jews and by the people of Israel. The second thing that is interesting is that so strike two was that she was also a woman. Women were greatly marginalized in that culture. They were little more than property. That's really all a woman was in that time in that culture. Um, they couldn't even be witnesses in court. There was one rabbinic saying that um, a rabbi would never speak to a woman in public, not even his own wife. And to drive this point further home, I, I just um, would ask you to look down at verse 27. Because I want you to notice the disciples' response. When they got back, Jesus was talking to this woman. And I want you to notice their response, which I think speaks volumes. It says, just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say they marveled that Jesus was talking with that woman, or that kind of woman, they marveled that he was talking to a woman at all. Strike two. Strike three comes in the form of the fact that this wretched woman was shunned by her own people. Now, we're, we're reading into the text a bit, but she came to draw water in the hottest part of the day. That is not when you went to get water, because it was hot. You went early in the morning, and you went late in the afternoon. You didn't go in the hottest part of the day. So she went in the hottest part of the day when nobody else would be there. Why did she do that? Well, we have at least some indication by the confession that she makes. 
Now you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. We can be pretty sure there were at least six women in that town that did not like her very much. Right? She was a harlot. That's a pretty polite word. So this was this outcast of outcasts, this most unlikely of people, yet this is the person that Jesus used to start a revival in Samaria. Henry Garricky faced a similar challenge. I mean, I mean, imagine that. He was shaken badly. And imagine how you would feel. What would you do? And this is, these are the very questions he had. How am I going to react to these men who would cause so much pain, so much death, so much destruction, so much suffering? These men who had tried to take over the world and ruined it in the process. How would you feel just meeting those people? Garricky wondered if just the, their, their breath would make, him, would make him vomit. How would you react to a person like that? You know, it's interesting. There was one man in that little congregation there that Henry Garricky had. One man was personally responsible for the death of one and a half million people. Now, there may have been some bad parishioners and some congregations and some churches, but man, a million and a half people. I'm supposed to share the gospel with that guy? I'm supposed to be kind and gracious to that guy? And yet, when Henry Garricky had the opportunity, I believe the first one he met was Herman Gehry, and some of you may know that name. Um, the first man he met, the first Nazi president, you know what he did? You know what Henry Garricky did? He walked right up to him and stuck out his hand and shook his hand. And he was, he was boy, he got roasted for that. The Allies just absolutely burned Garricky down, that he would do something to show them any kind of respect, any kind of, of deference or humaneness at all. And it was not an easy gesture for him to make. He, it wasn't that he was unconcerned for his, their, their crimes, but he wrote this. He, uh, he said he, wrote, he offered his hand in order that the gospel be not hindered by any wrong approach that I might make. I knew I could never win any of them to my way of thinking unless they liked me first. He understood he had to be kind to them. He had to show them grace and mercy and compassion even though they were terrible people. We could all learn that lesson. You see, we don't mind sharing the gospel with people like us. I'll tell you a little secret about um, church growth. I'll tell you the holy grail of church, of church growth. Like everybody, this is what everybody says. You go, every, every church says this. We want young families with kids. Right? That's like the holy grail. So Don and Jason are the holy grail of church growth, right? And um, you, you have this, and so this is what we want. We want these great nuclear families that are well-behaved kids, people that do all right, people that are like us. That's what we like. But I got to wonder, what does that mean for the people who are drug addicts? The people who are convicted felons? The mentally ill, the people who struggle with homosexuality or 
or any host of issues there. The list could go on and on, but what about those people who are damaged? In our view, very damaged, extremely damaged, toxic damaged. What about those people? When I first got started doing stuff at Shiloh, I worked with the youth quite a bit, and you would go to these youth training events, and here's what they would tell you. It says, you go to high school, Says what you do is you find like the, the captain of the football team and the head cheerleader, and you win them to Jesus. And then all the other kids will follow along. And that, that's the pattern, right? That's what you're supposed to do. But here's the reality. If we're ministering the way Jesus ministered, we will be attracting the kind of people he attracted. And Jesus didn't attract the football captains and the homecoming queens. He attracted the losers and the hurt and the despised people like me. Right? Not the big and biggest and the brightest, but the most damaged. That's who Jesus attracted. And so if we're doing ministry the way that Jesus did ministry, we're going to be attracting those same people. We need to remember that. And so in order to do that, in order to respond in that way, we need to remember a few things. First, we've got to remember that every person regardless of how damaged we view them to be, is a person made in the image of God. And for no other reason, they are valuable. They are to be cherished. They are to be loved. They are to be shown respect and dignity and never looked down upon and never marginalized. Henry Garricky believed that all human beings, including Nazi perpetrators of the Holocaust, deserve this kind of of dignity and respect and grace and compassion. Second thing we've got to do is we've got to remove pride. It's real easy for us to think, and this was, I think this one goes back to the Sunday school last, lesson last week, man, uh, thank God I'm not like that guy. I, I am not as bad as him. That's what we always do. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when people compare themselves against other people, it's always somebody really bad like Hitler. Well, at least I'm not as bad as Hitler. You know, that's what we do. You can always find somebody worse than you. And that's what we do. But we look down and we marginalize those people and we somehow think, well, I'm better than them. Look, you guys don't know me. But I want to just be pretty blunt with you. In here and in here... I'm pretty awful. I know what's in my heart and I know what's in my head. And it's pretty bad. And I don't know any of you guys very well, but you're no prize either. Because I know we are all sinners. We are all rebels, traitors against God in our heart and our minds. That's what we are. And, and, and we think because our sin is not that sin, you know, our sin is not drug addiction. Our sin is not adultery. Our sin is not pornography. Our sin is not alcoholism. Our sin is not whatever. That we're somehow better. But we're not. And we need to remember that. And when we remember that, one thing, it's going to go a long way in who we'll be willing to share the gospel with and reach out to. But the final thing we need to remember in that is we must never give up on anyone. 
I don't know if you're like me, but that you have people in your life who don't know Jesus, who have not known Jesus, who have absolutely no interest in knowing Jesus, and you have prayed for them and shared with them for years and for years and for years. And as best you can tell, that ground's just getting harder. I just want to encourage you with this. That as long as they still have breath in their body, there is still hope. So do not give up. Continue to pray. Continue to share as best and all you can. Because there is nowhere you can get that so far that Jesus can't bring you back. As long as you still have breath. So as we go on and we look in verse 21 then of John chapter 4. Since Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus talks about that hour. Now, he might mean a lot of things, but I think ultimately what he's talking about is that day. The day that we're all looking forward to. The great and glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes back, that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's talking about that day. The final day when He will return as judge of all things. See, that's the day that we prepare people for when we share the gospel with them. And that's the day we should be looking for. And interestingly enough, Henry Garricky was used by God to prepare several of his Nazi congregation for that day. I believe there were 12 men who were hanged. Um, and in his, final, in his final report, he said that he believed four of them died as penitent sinners, trusting God's mercy for forgiveness. They believed in Jesus, who shed his blood for their sins. One, Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel, his final moments were among the most poignant. On his knees and under deep emotional stress, Keitel received the body and blood of our Savior, Garricky wrote later. With tears in his voice, he said, You have helped me so much more than you know. May Christ, my Savior, stand by me all the way. I shall need him so much. This is a man who ran the Nazi war machine who called upon and trusted upon the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So at a well in Samaria, a woman of terrible reputation and lifestyle found something that she wasn't looking for. So again, I want you to notice this. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town. Why did she go there the first place? She went to get water. And yet, what did she leave behind? Her water jar. I wasn't very smart. Except that she came to draw water in a man-made vessel that would only leave her to thirst again. But what she found there was a fountain of living water that would fill her. A fountain of living water from which she would never thirst again. A fountain of living water that would not only fill her and fill her needs, but would ultimately, and we'll see next week, overflow out of her to share with those around her. Jesus had seized an opportunity for evangelism at the unlikeliest of times and the unlikeliest of places among the most unlikely of people, and he began a revival. How great is 
the gospel. How powerful is it? How amazing is it? It is so great. It is so powerful. It is so amazing that on the day Jesus returns, that there will be Nazi perpetrators of the Holocaust in the kingdom of God. That is how great the gospel is. That is how great the salvation of Jesus is. We need to remember that. So, Henry Garrick, he borrowed the lines I told you from the hymn. Later in his life, he, he added a new line borrowed from Corey Tin Boom. And so as we close today, I pray that this would be our prayer for our lives, our prayer for this church. And it goes like this. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And I may nobly do my part to win that soul for Thee. And when I come to the beautiful city and the saved all around me appear, I want to hear somebody tell me it was You who invited me here. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for what You have done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, that there is no sin so great that He cannot save us. That there is no place in our life that we can be that is so deep, so depraved that You cannot deliver us. Lord, that there is no person who is so awful that they are outside of Your love, that they are outside of Your ability to save them. So Lord, I would pray that you would speak that truth deep into our hearts. That you would continually remind us of the depravity of the sin that you have saved us from. But Lord, that you would also remind us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that it is our great privilege, our great responsibility to go and share that great love with those who don't know Jesus. Lord, there is no greater news. There is no more important message because there is no more powerful message. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. So Lord, may we share it. May we share it at the unlikeliest of times and the unlikeliest of places among the most unlikely of people. And Lord, may you bless that. And may you begin a revival. May you change people and deliver people and save people as we are faithful to that call. Now unto you that is able to keep us from falling and to you that is able to bring us into your glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen.